when I met my wife Amanda, she was a student at Texas A&M University. Right. It's a great university. Uh, the reason I know that is because everyone who went there tells you that over and over and over again. <laughs> no, it is a great university. And I was going to a small Christian school up in uh, southwest Missouri where I am from, but I would come and visit Amanda pretty consistently at A&M. And uh, I would skip class to go and visit her. But when I came to visit her, she refused to skip class. So I had a lot of free time on my hands on campus while she was in class. And so I would just kind of make myself at home. I would go to the student union, but I made sure that I took my hat off and I would make sure that I didn't step in the certain grasses that you're not allowed to step on. All the rules written and unwritten, uh, I would try to follow. And if you took a snapshot of me on one of those days on campus you would not have been able to tell that I didn't go to school there. I usually had a backpack so I could have something to read while she was in class. I would go to the places that students went. I looked like a student and I acted like a student, but I was not. I was there, but not one of them. The scripture says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, a powerful, powerful word yet easily missed. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. When you put your faith in Jesus, you were transferred. You stopped being like everyone else, even if you look like everyone else, act like everyone else, do a lot of the same things that everyone else does. A transferred, transfer happened, and now you are in the kingdom of Jesus. And we're going to spend the next seven or eight weeks talking about that kingdom. How do we live in that kingdom? What is the foreign policy of the kingdom? What are the economics of the kingdom? And I want to start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see in your listening guide you received on the way in, there are three things I want you to remember. These are foundational for our understanding of the kingdom of Jesus. Number one, we are an invisible nation inside a visible nation. We are an invisible nation inside a visible nation. A couple of weeks ago, my family was in Alaska. I had never been in that part of the world. I'd never been to the Northwest part of the United States. And so leading up to the trip, I had spent a lot of time on Google Maps, uh, as people do, just uh, learning about that part of the country and learning about Alaska and, and trying to picture it. And where was our boat going and where would we come back and what are the ways and what are the roads and just getting understanding. And when you zoom out to see all of that, you can see everything. You can see Canada, you can see Alaska, you can see the United States, you can see down into Mexico, you can see all of those places. But when you search the kingdom of God, there is no map that you can see it on. 
We see what's around us. We see this visible nation, the United States of America, or wherever it is that you're from. But we cannot see the kingdom of Jesus on a map. We are an invisible nation living inside a visible nation. And look at how he describes us in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, those are some very weighty words that Peter uses to describe these Christians. But he did not create those phrases. He's actually quoting God. Those words were something God said about Israel. We see that in Exodus chapter 19. Almost a direct quote Peter is using. In verse 5, written thousands and thousands of years before Peter was ever born. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Peter is quoting what God said about his nation, Israel. Now, just a brief sketch of the Old Testament, if you don't mind. Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. Nature, the processes of nature, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ate the fruit they weren't supposed to. Because of that, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. Separation occurred. By Genesis chapter 6, that sin that Adam and Eve started had multiplied in such a way that the whole world was evil, the scripture says. So God decides to flood it, but he saves one family, Noah, on the ark and Noah's family. By Genesis chapter 12, the earth is beginning to repopulate and God picks a man named Abraham out of obscurity. He was not a God worshiper. He worshiped lots of different idols just as his neighbors in his community did. But God selected him and said, through you and your descendants, I'm going to demonstrate to the whole world my covenant of faithfulness and love. Abraham has children. His children have children. Their children have children. By the end of Genesis Abraham's descendants find themselves living in Egypt because of a famine. You turn the page into Exodus. Some number of years has passed and now Abraham's descendants, known as the Israelites, are slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God for rescue. God sends Moses. The book of Exodus is the story of how God took them from slavery all the way through the desert to the land of promise, a section of the world that he had carved out just for his people. And there when they were in that land of promise, they set up their nation. Sometimes they had kings that led them in righteousness. Sometimes they had kings that led them in darkness. In their times of darkness, God would send his prophets. They would bring benevolent warnings. Come back to God. Worship the one true God. Stop wasting your time with these idols. Sometimes Israel received those messages. Sometimes they would reject. After a while, they just began to reject. And so God sent them into exile. The nation of Babylon came and burned Jerusalem to the ground and took off many of the Israelites back to Babylon. You fast forward 400 years, the Israelites are back living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been rebuilt and the temple in Jerusalem has been rebuilt, but it's been rebuilt with some gusto. In fact, at the time, it was probably the most awe-inspiring building on planet earth. And people would come to it. Israelites would come to it to worship God through their sacrifices and prayers. Gentile people, non-Jewish people would come just to see the building, just to see the atmosphere. And if you were a Gentile person, like most of us are, and you came to the temple, 
you could come into the temple complex, but you couldn't get to the heart of the temple. See, there was a court of Gentiles, and that's where you could be. But inside the court of Gentiles was the real temple where the action was happening, where the sacrifices were happening, and only the people of Israel could go in there. There was a clear distinction. I am a part of the people of God, and I am not a part of the people of God. And then Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and everything changed. Jesus taught about God's kingdom, but he didn't talk about it in a way that had to do with blood and heredity. But he talked about it differently. Where others closed the doors, he opened the door. And through his life, his death, his resurrection, what Peter is telling these early Christians is you used to not be a part of the people of God. But now you are, and you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people who belong to God. In Christ, now this is true for you. So now we, followers of Jesus, are an invisible nation. You can't see it on a map. Living inside a world that you can see. Second thing that I want you to write down is we are sojourners and exiles in this visible nation. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter says, I urge you. It's a picture of when you were teaching your children to ride their bicycles for the first time. You took the training wheels off. You didn't just send them out into the street. You came alongside of them and you walked with them at first, keeping them upright. Then you ran with them. And then finally, only after they got their balance, did you release them. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying, I'm urging you. I'm coming alongside of you. I want you to get this. I want you to understand this, that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. Uh, To be a sojourner, exile, it literally means uh, you're dwelling near. You're, You're not of this place, but you are around this place. The Apostle Paul was echoing this idea. He just used different terminology in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The most international place I have ever been is London's Heathrow Airport. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the world comes to get on planes in this one place. And you see it when you check in on your flight because everybody brings out their passport and all the passports are different colors. We have our Navy, United States passport. The the British people have their maroon, uh, UK passport, lots of different colors. And we come to that one place together to get on planes, but In your passport, it tells you where you're from. I'm from the United States. You may be for somewhere else. And what Paul is saying, what Peter is saying, is your passport used to say one thing, but when you connected your life to Jesus, your passport changed, and now your passport says heaven. That's where you're from. You used to just be from here. But now you're from heaven. You're around but you're no longer of. Your citizenship has changed. As I mentioned, the Israelites themselves, they 
were exiles and sojourners in the land of Babylon. That's where we get the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You may remember those from when you were a child. Uh, They were actually selected to be in the king's service. They were a part of a training program to help them become stewards of the king. And uh, a part of the benefit of being in that program was you got to eat the palace's food. You didn't have to eat food like normal people. You got the leftovers of the king's table. And so lots of rich meat, lots of wine, all the wine that you could drink. But Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that God had already established dietary guidelines for them in the Old Testament. And so they had some restrictions that the rest of the people in the training program didn't have. And so Daniel approached the leader of the program and said, you know, we got all this food and that's so great, but we actually can't eat this food. We have some parameters. Uh, Do you mind if we ate our diet instead of vegetables and water? I mean, that's like a Houstonian's worst nightmare. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we'll apply that portion of the scripture spiritually and not literally. (laughs) But Daniel says, this is what we need to eat. And the leader of the program clearly is thinking about himself and he's like, listen, this is what you're supposed to eat in the program. And if you guys are not up to the level that you're supposed to be, it's going to be my head on the platter, literally. And Daniel says, let me make a deal with you. We'll do it for a shorter period of time. And if at the end, you don't like the way that we look, then we'll get on board with yours. But you know what happens. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the others, they're the best of the best. They're the smartest. They're the brightest. They're the most fit. They were exiles and sojourners in Babylon. They were around Babylon, but they were not of Babylon. And so it meant that they abstained. So that's what Peter is saying. We are around, but our passport has changed. We are from heaven. We are not of. So there are some things that we abstain from. And Peter mentions specifically, we abstain from passions. In chapter four, he will explain a little in more detail about what those passions are. The best way to summarize it is that craving you have in your human nature, that craving for things that you know God does not want you to crave for, those are the passions he's talking about. That lingering on a channel that you know you shouldn't linger on, but you do anyway, that. We abstain from that. Because while we are here, we are not of we're from heaven. And obviously this is easier to say than it is to do, even for missionaries. The apostle Paul had a friend named Demas, unfortunate name, but a missionary who in another of Paul's letters, he commends, he lifts up as a model. But at the end of Paul's life, he says in second Timothy chapter four, verse nine, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Even a missionary got caught up in what he could see. This present world. He forgot that his citizenship, his passport was marked by heaven. And he loved this present world. And he abandoned Paul. So what does that mean? Does that mean we run away? People have done that historically. Historically. Because if those two things are true, that 
We are an invisible nation inside a visible nation, and we're also sojourners and exiles, and we should be abstaining from things that the rest of the world is indulging in themselves. Maybe the answer is that we buy a piece of property outside the city, and we just sort of all go and move there. People have done that. In fact, there was a group of people in the late 1700s and early 1800s called the Shakers. You don't remember much about the Shakers, except for many of you have kitchen cabinets that they invented, a Shaker-style cabinet they created in this community in which they lived. They lived in big cities like Philadelphia and New York City, and they said these same things that we're saying today. We are not of here. We are around here, but we're not of here. We need to abstain. No one in our cities are, is abstaining, so let's run away. And they formed communities out in the country of New York, in Maine, and in different places in Pennsylvania, and they would live in these communities. Is that the answer? Peter says, no, that's not the answer, because the third and final thing I want you to write down is we have a responsibility to this visible nation. The answer is to to not run away. Look what Peter says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now these are costly words that Peter is writing to these Christians because when you read 1 Peter from beginning to end, you see that he references their suffering pretty consistently. They're being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. They're being treated with hostility. I mean, that's why he just takes it for granted when he says, when they speak against you as evildoers because this was already happening. This was not something that was going to happen to them in the future. This was already happening to them. And his answer is, don't run away. But conduct yourselves with honor, which means to be held in esteem. What that means for us is that when people disrespect our beliefs, they still need to esteem our behavior. When people think that you are foolish for believing that there was a person who was alive, dead, and alive again, and they think you uneducated because you have oriented everything that you do around that fact, when they are disrespecting your beliefs, they still need to esteem your behavior. I read this week that there's a Christian conference in California that had put up a billboard to advertise their conference so people would come. And it was not an incredibly offensive or overtly Jesus-y kind of billboard, but one day one of the leaders of the conference drove by the billboard and it wasn't up anymore. And so they called the company and said, hey, what happened? Well, Well, people had complained about it, said it was offensive, so the billboard company took it down. And the conference, to their credit, said, well, we can change it. I mean, there was a person on there holding a Bible. If that's offensive, we'll take that part out and just kind of present the facts. We'd really like the billboard to be up. And the company said, no, thanks, but no, thanks. We're going to keep it down. The scripture tells us that thing is happening, always has happened, will always be happening. And maybe it will continue to happen in ever increasing ways that we will be disrespected because of our faith in Jesus. But we are still responsible to live in a way that they cannot deny. They cannot deny our kindness. They cannot deny our grace. They cannot deny our forgiveness. They cannot deny our good work. They cannot deny how we interact with the poor. They cannot deny how we care about our city. That even if they disrespect our beliefs, they would esteem our behavior. And that's hard because church people can be the worst of the worst. And so we have some 
changing that needs to happen. This isn't a new thing. This, God has always felt this way. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 29, God sends a message to the Israelites before Jerusalem was destroyed and they were sent off to Babylon. It says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God says, I take credit for this. You didn't listen to my warnings. Babylon is going to burn Jerusalem to the ground. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Think about how hard that would have been for the Israelites. Babylon brought Jerusalem to the ground. And it wasn't just their city. It was the city of their God. And now he's saying, you're going to go into the land of your tormentors and I want you to seek their welfare. I want you to pray for them. And I want you to live your life. Get married. Have children. Your children get married. They have children. Keep on living. And while you're living, seek the good of Babylon. The answer is not to run away. The answer is to run in. When we see darkness in our city, we don't go and hide. We're the first ones in. When we get frustrated with the systems that are broken in our world, we don't just complain about it on the internet. We pray for those systems. We pray for the people who lead those systems. Because our passport says heaven. So we seek the welfare of Houston and the United States because we are responsible for this visible nation that we live in. So if those things are true, that we are an invisible nation inside a visible nation and we are sojourners and exiles here and our passport's been changed and we're supposed to seek the good of the city that we live in, then we need to start thinking about ourselves differently. We need to interact with people differently and our priorities need to change. And those are the things we'll be talking about for the next few weeks. Let's pray.